Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. For this season, season six, the focus is on robbery-related murders, or basically like murders where the victim was killed simply because the killer or killers, they wanted something that the victim had. And like I said in the last episode, trust me, trust me, the state of Maryland has a lot of these types of homicides. And I only selected 10 of the most horrific. And this is just part one. Part two will come later, eventually. But for right now, season six, I only focused on 10 cases. So with that being said, let's get right on into it and focus on this week's episode. Now, on this episode, the murderer, Brittany Norwood, will be profiled. And as in each episode and in every season, there will be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will also be profiled. And for this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 47-year-old Joanne Shuey Valentine will be examined. Now, a spoiled brat. That's, that's what this next episode is about. A spoiled lion brat with anger issues who doesn't know the meaning of the word accountability. A lion brat who cannot control herself with a zap out mentality like like you would not believe. I mean, seriously, like a mother. I mean, honestly, like a mother. I mean, there's it's killing a person, like I've said in previous podcast episodes. But then there's also like overkill, like going overboard or brutally ending a person's life with extra savagenesses or extra brutality. What makes a person just snap and lose it? I mean, man, I would love to sit across from this next killer and just ask her, like, were you really that worried about what other people or your family or whoever were going to think about you? Like, did you really want to protect a lie or your image that much? And and, and the lies, the lies, like, I mean, wow. Like, what, what a storyteller. Damn. I mean, I'm telling you, lies never, ever play out right in the end. And I, I bet you Brittany knows that now. I mean, yoga pants. All this over some freaking yoga pants? I can't even fathom it. I mean, even to this day, it's just hard to believe. Now, born in Bethesda, Brittany grew up in Federal Way, Washington. And she was a standout star soccer player in high school and all throughout college. Brittany went to school in Washington State and to Stony Brook University in Long Island, New York, where she was named uh, Defensive Most Valuable Player on the school soccer team in 2003. Other than Brittany's soccer accomplishments, her teammates knew Brittany to be a thief or one of those type of girls where if you left a per your purse or your pocketbook around or your bag or something like that laying around, things would mysteriously just come up missing. Brittany also had financial and money issues. And in 2007, 
she had a civil judgment placed against her for not paying and owing almost $20,000 in student loans. After college, Brittany got a job at the Lululemon Athletic Store in Bethesda, and she gained a reputation for stealing stuff there too. The managers there knew that she had been stealing stuff, and they made plans to fire her. But before they did, they wanted to catch her red-handed. They wanted to catch her in the act first so they can have proof. So while working there, Brittany's co-worker, 30-year-old Jana Murray, apparently caught Brittany trying to steal a pair of yoga pants out of the store. Apparently, Jana threatened to report Brittany to management to get Brittany fired or whatever. I mean, now I know, I mean, it's honestly, it's like I know people like this. I do, honestly. Instead of just fessing up and being like, all right, you got me. You're going you're gonna to take that lie to the grave. You're so scared. You're like, you, you're so scared and so paranoid about what other people think about you that you can't even face yourself, let alone what other people think or anybody else. I mean, is it really, really that serious when you think about it? Brittany's mind was racing and she had to do something because if she was reported, then everybody was going to know that once again, she was a thief. The manager probably wasn't even going to call the cops or nothing. I mean, they wasn't, probably weren't even going to press charges. The worst that was going to happen is Brittany would have lost her job. So what? I mean, again, it's that mentality of what other people are going to think about me. So 30-year-old Jana Murray had been studying for two master's, degree, master's degrees, and she had a full life ahead of her. She had no way of knowing that she was working with a full-blown, spoiled psychopath, really. After Brittany was caught stealing a pair of yoga pants, she was still allowed to complete her shift, and together, Brittany and Jana closed the store on March the 11th, 2011. They both left at around 9.51 p.m., but after they left the store, Brittany called another employee who worked there and asked for Jana's cell number, telling her that she needed to come back to the store because she had left her wallet there. Now, when Jana did show up to let Brittany back in the store to get her wallet, not planning on being there long, Jana double parked her car in front of the store, hopped out, and walked to the store. No doubt, Brittany confronted her about the stolen yoga pants that she had found in her pocketbook but then an argument started, which led to a physical fight. An employee at an Apple, Apple iPhone store next door later told detectives that they heard a woman say, talk to me, do not do that, talk to me, what's going on? Then the Apple store employee heard screaming, somebody begging for help. Then they heard all these other noises, like another loud scream. They heard grunting, squealing, and a woman yelling, God help me, help me, please. So the Apple employee did complain to a security guard, but the security guard didn't investigate where the screams were coming from. Brittany had other plans, and she could not face the consequences of being a known thief, a liar, or losing her job. So she chose plan B and decided that she was just going to murder the girl. That next morning, when another employee of the store showed up to open the store, she saw the store had been ransacked and she heard noises coming from the back of the store, like moaning and stuff. The employee got a little scared, so 
she asked like a man who was walking by the store to please go check it out for her. Lululemon Athletic Store was located in Bethesda around like other trendy stores and other, you know, like high priced retail stores. And Bethesda is one of the safest areas to work and live in Maryland. So the man agreed to check things out for her. And when he did, he walked directly into a bloody crime scene that looked like he was in the middle of a horror movie. I mean, bloody footprints all throughout the store, money scattered all throughout the area, trash all around. The police were called, and when they showed up, they found two people in a back room. Two women in a back room. Brittany was moaning and laying on the floor, apparently too distraught and too traumatized to open her eyes, look at anybody, respond to any questions, or even say a word to anybody. One of the police later testified in court that when he touched Brittany's arm, she flinched like she couldn't stand to be touched. Great actress. Brittany's hands and ankles were tied with zip ties. Her arms and hands were like up above her head. And she had small cuts on her legs, arms, chest, forehead, and a one inch scar or cut on her right hand next to her thumb. Brittany was out of it, so to speak too shaken up to talk at first she's just like you know i'm i'm out of it I, I i can't i can't even move i can't talk i can't look at nobody i'm out of it now jana wasn't so lucky first off the whole back area was like a scene out of like texas chainsaw mass texas chainsaw massacre i used to do crime scene cleanup and it's just ugh. Blood, every, brain matter everywhere. Blood was all on the floor. Blood was all on the walls. Blood was on the ceiling. Clearly, clearly, Jaina was dead from found face down in a pool of her own blood. Jaina had cuts to her head, cuts to her face, cuts to her neck, cuts to her back, cuts all over and a rope around her neck. Jaina had no pulse and was pronounced dead at the scene. What the hell had happened here? You know especially up in this upscale bougie neighborhood in montgomery county where nothing like this had ever happened in bethesda before the police uh ems personnel immediately transported Brittany to suburban hospital in an, in an ambulance on a stretcher around 8 a.m because apparently she was even too distraught to even walk Brittany finally broke down and started talking to the detectives because they were like come on now get your shit together tell me what the fuck happened immediately something just did not feel right so according to murderpedia britney started talking and the story she told the detectives was incredible worthy of an academy award britney told the detectives that she and jana had been closing the store the night before when suddenly two men wearing ski masks came into the like the store the door behind them. Brittany told the detectives that the two masked men robbed the store and brutally beat, raped, and choked both her and Jaina. Brittany, who had been found with her, like her pants slit, like in a crotch area, she told the detectives that the men raped her with a wooden clothes hanger. And she told the detectives that because Jaina had resisted and fought with the attackers, that she was killed. 
but the attackers let Brittany live and her life was spared because they had told her that she was easy and fun to fuck. Wow. <laughs> but the attackers, they did mistreat her and disrespect her by calling her like racial names and racial like slurs and names like dirty little bitch and dirty little whore. When the medical examiner, when the medical examiner um, examined Jana's, Jana's battered body, the number of injuries she sustained were absolutely astronomical, completely and totally opposite from the number of superficial injuries that Brittany had sustained. Jana had six blunt wounds to her head, another severe blunt wound that fractured her skull. Jana had numerous stab wounds to her shoulder, her back, and two other stab wounds in the back of her head. Jana had deep rope marks on her neck and 107 defensive wounds on her body where she had been alive, literally fighting for her life. With more than 330 separate cuts, marks, and ligature marks all on her body, the medical examiner later testified in court that Jana's injuries were the most that she had ever seen on one person. She determined that at least six different weapons had been used to kill Jana, including a knife, a hammer, a wrench, a rope, and a display merchandise rod that had been used to beat Jana's skull into a bloody pulp fracturing it. The last fatal blows came from a knife that went through Jana's neck and severed her spinal cord. And like I said, Jaina had been alive through most of this and because Brittany said that both she and Jaina had been raped at the hospital, the doctors did perform a rape kit on both of them. Immediately, the detectives found Brittany's story intriguing, incredible, and they found issues and discrepancies in her story, but still, I mean, because of the story that Brittany had told them, and, and until they could prove otherwise, a reward of more than $150,000 was offered up to catch these two masked brazen killers who were bold enough to rob and rape two women in bougie-ass Bethesda. As the detectives investigated the crime scene, they noticed that there were only two sets of bloody footprints that had been found on the floor. One of the footprints came from, like one of the footprints came from a men's size 14 Reebok tennis shoe that was conveniently found at the crime scene. And the other footprint belonged to the same shoe size that Brittany wore. While Brittany was conveniently released from the hospital with no real injuries, Jana's family had the task of planning her funeral described as bright, loving, compassionate, intelligent, adventurous, and devoted to her family, Jaina was a graduate student at John Hopkins University, and according to articles for the Washington Post, Jaina loved adventure and stuff like bungee jumping. Jaina's family did release a statement to the press saying, actually her father said, one of the most fearless people I've ever known in my life. And that's as objective as a father can get. I really admired her for everything she did and everything she represented. Now, I believe from the 
from the very, me myself, I believe that from the very beginning that the detectives did not believe a word of Britney's story, like none of it. I just, it, it just didn't fit. It didn't sound right. Britney's story wasn't adding up. It wasn't make sense. Her actions did not make sense, especially when the results from the rape kit showed that neither Britney or Jaina had been raped. And when Jaina's car was found with her blood on it, how did like, her blood get in the car? Britney's story just fell apart one by one, one layer, one lie after another lie. And about a week after Jaina was killed, Britney's own brother and sister actually contacted the detectives involved in the case and told them that Britney had some more information to explain why Jaina's blood had been found in her car. And she had been holding this information from them because she was too scared to tell them. I wonder if they actually believed it. But anyway, Britney's brother and sister told the detectives that the killers had told Britney to move Jaina's car. Like they ordered her to move Jaina's car. And that's why her blood had been found in the car. Really? I honestly cannot. After hearing this, the detectives decided to bring Brittany in for questioning. And again, when questioning about this piece of information, Brittany told the detectives that the killers had ordered her to move Jaina's car that had been double parked in front of the store to a parking space a few blocks away on Wisconsin Avenue. Brittany said that the killers told her, <laughs> like, oh, I know where you live, and that if she wasn't back in 10 minutes, that she was going to be killed. I honestly cannot believe she actually said this out of her mouth while Brittany was quote-unquote driving Jaina's car to a better parking spot. I mean, what, so I won't get told? Brittany actually told the detectives that she did see a police car. She said this too, that she saw a police car and she saw two other people on the street, but nope. She ain't scream. She didn't think about getting away. She didn't say nothing to nobody about no attack or anybody on the street because she was a good little victim. And she was scared because that they said that they was going to kill her if she disobeyed them and blah, all this blah, 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 blah. So when you get used to lying all your life, lies like this actually sound normal to you. To other people, it sounds like bullshit. Brittany sat there and told the detectives that after she parked Jaina's car a few blocks away, she casually just strolled right back to the store, walked right through the front door that the killers had conveniently left unlocked for her, and got right back into the position. Really. After Brittany told the detectives this incredible addition to an already incredible and suspicious story, they had had enough, and on March 18, 2011, Brittany was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Lie after lie after lie. Like, seriously, no accountability whatsoever, this freaking joke. Ooh, Brittany thought that she could fool anybody. Just keep lying. Just keep lying. I mean, I I, I got in the way with it before. I mean, no, no doubt. Lying had no doubt. I'm quite sure lying had worked for her before. So Brittany pled not guilty to the charges, continuing to lie, and decided to take her case to trial. Brittany's attorney wasn't denying the fact that she killed Jaina. They were just saying that the murder was second degree murder and not first degree murder because Brittany had just snapped and acted like in a heat of passion. 
a Montgomery County jury of six men and six women found Brittany guilty of first-degree murder after deliberating for only about an hour after a trial that lasted eight days. Eight days of wasting people's time. And at Brittany's sentencing hearing, which more than 20 people attended, the judge didn't hold back as she said, you're one hell of a liar, ma'am. With or without parole, you will live. You will see another sunrise, another sunset. It may be through a prison window. There'll be Christmases. There'll be telephone calls. There'll be visits. But the only visits Jane or Mary will have are those to her grave. The judge continued and called Brittany a cold-blooded, brutal, calculated, deliberate, devious, malicious, and that in all her years, she has never seen such a brutal and savage killing. Brittany's brother tried his best to defend his sister, telling the judge, there's another side to Brittany that was not brought out in the trial. Please, your honor, at least give her some hope. If you leave her with hope, you in turn leave our family with hope. Before Brittany was sentenced, Brittany herself was allowed to make a statement. And she actually said to the court, Before I go to prison, I need you to know how deeply sorry I am. In the end, on January 26, 2012, Brittany was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility for parole. And after she was sentenced, Brittany's family showed their satisfaction by applauding and clapping at the verdict. And the year before, in 2011, Jaina's family had established the Jaina Troxel Murray Foundation to remember her life and to honor her memory. Now, come on now, let's just keep it real. This crime was, it, this crime was notorious in the state of Maryland because first off, it was, it made national attention. It was committed in Montgomery County and those of us uh, who are from Maryland or Baltimore, whatever, um, Montgomery County bougies, I don't know what. Seriously, and that's just saying it lightly. Nothing ever goes down really in that part of like Bethesda. Come on now. And plus, she was black. The victim was white. Girl on girl crime. I was like, seriously? In Bethesda? Nothing like that ever happens. And then for it to be so brutal. If you don't remember this one, I mean, either you ain't from Maryland or you've been living under the rock. Seriously, because... This one was very notorious in the state of Maryland. It, it goes to show where lying gets you. I mean, I bet you she was probably one of those kids that lied to you growing up. Just a liar, 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 storytelling liar. I wonder if Brittany rejects her, like if she regret it. To this day, I mean, if she's still, she's in Jessup somewhere, you know, but does she regret her actions? You know, does she have any remorse? Was this really over some yoga pants? I mean, we call these people Zabos. There had to have been more to it than just some yoga pants. I mean, I would love to ask her, what was the argument? What led up to you to make you just zap out like this? Seriously, to throw everything, your whole entire life away because you couldn't control your anger that much? There's a million stories online about this case. You know, I, I tried to sum it up the best as I could with the information that I obtained, but it's, it's, this case has been profiled online on almost every true crime show. So like I'm saying, like if you don't if you didn't hear about this case, wow. But this is why this is gonna be 
one of the most notorious cases in Maryland history. I'm going to move right along into this week's unsolved homicide. But before I do, let me just mention that, as I always do, that this is not a podcast. It just focuses on the most heinous, high-profile homicide cases in current, occurring in Maryland. We don't just always give, you know, the murderer's attention. Or on this podcast, a portion will always be dedicated to victims where nobody knows what happened. Where nobody knows, or should I say, nobody is saying about Nobody's never talking about what happened, where you only hear about these cases once and that's it. Where a victim was literally here one minute and then gone the next minute. And you'd be surprised at the number of people who were killed and the friends or family of the victim. They may have a feeling that they know who killed their loved one, especially after some time has went past. But because they can't prove it or they don't have the actual evidence, they don't know how to go about getting answers. They don't know how to go about, you know, getting justice for the victim. And they are still left with tons of unanswered questions, unbelievable grief. And it's like the victim died all over again. It's hard to just move on with your life like that. When you have so many unanswered questions, you're expected to just move on, pick up where you left off, hope that the detectives would do their job and then hope that the justice system will deliver you some sort of justice that can come close to the feelings of grief and loss that you experience when you lose a loved one to homicide. You know, getting justice in the state of Maryland don't happen a lot. And to be blunt, detectives are kept busy with homicide cases that already have clues, cases that already have evidence, and they cases that already got witnesses and people willing to talk about them. But what about the homicide cases that don't have clues? You know, like, like how my father's case was. These cases are eventually labeled as cold cases, like my father's case was, and put on the back burner, so to speak. And to be honest, not a lot really happens until evidence just seemingly just fall out the sky. Or somebody open up their mouth and decide they want to talk about it. Or somebody want to come clean. Well... On this podcast, every single unsolved homicide needs special attention. No matter what the victim did or didn't do. No matter what the victim's lifestyle was like. No matter what they did or didn't do in their personal life. Who in the hell are we to judge when we ain't perfect our damn self? That way of reasoning or justifying killing somebody gets me like every single time. Like who are we to judge and decide who lives and who dies? Oh, so-and-so deserved to be killed because they was out here tricking. Or so-and-so deserved to get shot because he was out here selling drugs. Or dude got himself killed because he was out here getting high living the lifestyle. Really? Last time I checked, ain't none of y'all named God. No one is perfect. And we all make mistakes. So with that being said, the focus for season six, Unsolved Homicides, has been and will be all women. The focus on season six, like I said, is all women who have lost their life to homicides in the state of Maryland and their cases have not been solved. That has been the focus for the unsolved cases for this season, season six. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting death of 47-year-old Joanne Shuey Valentine. September 26, 1993, around four in the morning. 
47-year-old Joanne Shuey Valentine was driving home from work to her waterfront home on Broadwater Road in Arnold that she shared with her husband and her 15-year-old and 13-year-old sons. After Joanne pulled into her driveway, Joanne's husband heard arguing out in front of his door, so he went outside on his bedroom balcony to see what was going on. Maybe He thought maybe it was just his two sons fooling around at the wee hours of the morning, but instead he witnessed a small car pull up behind Joanne's car and a man who had long hair got out of the car. Then his wife got out of her car and started arguing. She started arguing with several men that were in the car. Then the man who had gotten out of the car suddenly pulled out a 38 Taurus handgun and shot Joanne. The bullet traveled through Joanne's forearm and neck. Joanne's husband ran downstairs and out the door to his wife, but by the time he got there, the shooter had ran off and the other car was gone, and Joanne bled to death in her husband's arms. Joanne's two sons managed to sleep through the whole tragic event. After being rushed to Maryland shock trauma, Joanne was pronounced dead a few hours later. She was officially pronounced dead a few hours later. Joanne and her husband owned Rubblefish Bar that used to be in the 7900 block of Baltimore Annapolis Boulevard in Pasadena. The couple also owned A.L. Gators Bar that was in the 8500 block of Fort Smallwood Road in Rivera Beach. After an initial investigation by the detectives, they think that Joanne's murder was a botched robbery, but Joanne was still carrying $3,000 in her purse and nothing was taken. Joanne, who was described by her friends and family as a very hard worker and a loving mother and wife, was the matriarch of the family. And after she was murdered, everything changed. Before the family lived in an upper-middle-class lifestyle with their kids in private schools, vacations, and living life on the water in Arnold, after Joanne was killed, the family sold both bars. The kids dropped out of high school. They stopped playing sports. Life just stopped. Um, Brumblefish was sold. Uh, the bar A.L. Gators was later renamed Daytona's. Um, one of Joanne's sons later released a statement in an article for the Baltimore Sun that said, the whole thing just left us with an I don't give a crap attitude. Now, the bar Rumblefish did have somewhat of a history of an unsavory and, you know, weird characters and fights and stuff like that. And a couple times the police had to be called to break up fights. And actually on the day that Joanne was killed, um, the police had to be called to the bar to break up a fight just like two hours before she was killed in the parking lot. But there is no connection or evidence that this was actually related to Joanne's murder. And about a week after Joanne was killed, the gun that was used in her killing was found in the trunk of a car. That it was found in the trunk of a car that belonged to a man that the police had arrested for stealing at a nearby grocery store. Because the gun, which had been reported stolen from the Target gun shop in the 2600 block of Annapolis Road in Severn on June 11, 1993, 
Um, because it had been found in the man's car, the man was arrested and charged with Joanne's killing. But those murder charges were later dropped because of the lack of evidence. Then, in 1994, another man was charged again for killing Joanne, but those charges were also later dropped and dismissed when evidence showed that he was locked up in a Baltimore County Detention Center at the time that Joanne was murdered. After that, the case turned cold, and it stayed cold. For 12 years, on the anniversary of Joanne's murder, her family had held a vigil to honor and celebrate Joanne's life, to keep her memory alive, and to basically pray for closure. Her family, you know, did this for 12 years while also praying for a suspect to be charged and convicted. But in 2003, Joanne's family just stopped having their annual vigil because it was just too painful to keep going. Every year with no results, Joanne's sister said in a statement to the press, it's too painful to do it. I can relate. It happens on TV. Cases get solved. There is someone out there who knows something about this case, and we just need them to come forward and say something. And 10 years after Joanne was killed in her driveway, her son, who was now an adult, also released a statement that said, We've just come to accept that there may never be closure, which is, mm, but everyone still wants to know exactly what happened that night. Joanne's husband later filed a $10 million lawsuit against the on-target gun store, alleging that employees who worked there, they were negligent. Basically, they were ne negligent in failing to allow other employees or to train other employees in preventing guns from being stolen and also for failing to keep the guns that they keep in their store safe. But in 1999, the courts determined that the gun the gun shop basically they does not they do not own a duty or compensation to a victim when or if a handgun is stolen from their store to commit a murder. Basically they're saying they're not responsible for what happened after a gun loses I mean leaves their store even if it's especially if it's stolen. Other than this, Anne Arundel County police have nothing. So y'all already know what time it is. And it's a shame that this has been going on since 1993. And y'all already know what I'm about to say. This case has been going on too long. And her family, especially her sons, they deserve answers. And to go through life just accepting that they may never get closure. I can't even... I mean, so if you have any information at all regarding this particular homicide, which is still unsolved, please call Anne Arundel County Detectives at 410-222-3487. You can also reach them at 410-276-8888. Or you can reach the Anne Arundel Cold Case Detectives at 410-222-3456. Once again, those numbers are 410 3487. You can reach them at 410-276-8888 or you can reach the Anne Arundel Cold Case Detectives at 410-222-3456. You can remain anonymous. You can say what you got to say and hang up. Just say what you got to say. Thank you for tuning in this week. 
Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of why I do what I do. The real and on why I got into true crime, why I started writing all the true crime books and the podcast and all of that. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day out of the out of the blue and was like, boom, I'm going to start a true crime podcast. Nope, that is not hardly true. This is a full-blown method to all of this madness. It's almost like a 20-year process, and this wasn't just some overnight gimmick. Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, and Maryland is spelled M-D-S, MostNotoriousMurders.com, where you can access episodes from all seasons, seasons one through six, you can see the progression of this podcast where season one, I was a little timid. I won't even say timid, but I was a little nervous, you know, being in front of a microphone and all of that. But as we progress during each season, you can see how I opened up a little bit. You can also find links to all the true crime books that are related to this particular podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through uh, 2008. You can find links to Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. You can also find links to the book that every woman should have, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, as well as my local bestsellers, Child of Baltimore and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week, where another gruesome, another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.